to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Hi, everyone. Welcome to VC Law, a podcast brought to you by the American Bar Association. I'm your host, Gary Ross. Today, we have with us Professor John Coates, professor at Harvard Law School and also the business school, as I understand, which he'll uh, tell us a little bit more about. Professor Coates, can you tell us a little bit about your background? What did you do before you got to Harvard? How long have you been there? Sure. I uh, practiced law doing mergers and acquisitions at Wachtell Lipton in Manhattan for what seemed like several hundred years, but I think actually (laughs) was about nine was Marty Lipton still there? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's still there. I mean, I, he's amazing, uh, his longevity. Uh, oh, yeah, he was quite active at the time. Related to venture capital, he 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 he, he managed to slow down uh, towards the end of the period I was there. The, some of the partners wanted to open a Silicon Valley office, and, and <laughs> he, he slowed them down enough so that by the time they finally located a good a good spot, the, the dot-com bubble had burst, and so they... Um, they they never did open one there. So <laughs> yes, Marty was around. Um, then I went, I started teaching part-time mergers and acquisitions at NYU at, uh, for a, as sort of a favor for a friend there and then, uh, and then fell in love with that. And so then I went into teaching right from Wachtell, came to Harvard and have been teaching M&A uh, ever since. The only um, gaps in there have been I've taught finance over at the business school, and then I've taught M&A at the business school as well. And then last year, I, I for reasons that, that my wife is still not sure about, I, I spent a year at the SEC, roughly a year, a little less, as the head of work then. And- How does that work? Did you, just, did you just get a phone call one day and said, hey, we need, uh, we need an acting person or we need someone? Come on down. Yeah. Not not far from that. I had been on the investor advisory committee for the SEC, helping to sort of uh, run quarterly meetings of advisory panels that would kind of inform the work of the commission um, for a few years. And in that way, I'd gotten to know um, some of the commissioners and, and some of the staff. And um, Allison Lee, who has now stepped down, but was the acting chair following Biden's election and inauguration did not want to have the commission just kind of do nothing for a few months until a full commit full chair was confirmed and that sometimes can take as long as you know the fall so she uh reached out and convinced me to come in and and what was supposed to just be a couple of months turned into uh, almost a year but uh and now i'm back at harvard doing m a again trying to finish up a book and uh helping teach both in the the regular program here as well. We have an exec ed program that's also built around uh, around mergers and acquisitions. Professor Coates, do you also consult on M&A deals? Do law firms reach out to you to consult on deals? I do. It's probably, you know, about half of the kind of outside consulting I do is related to M&A. And of that, you know, if it's both law firms as well as direct participants. I also consult with private equity funds and, and, and um, ARB funds and the like. Okay. Well, great. Well, you mentioned back in March that global M&A had lessened a bit due to Russia's war with Ukraine. What are you seeing now? 
you know, there has clearly been a downturn. It's not as sharp as I think many, including myself, might have predicted back in March. My belief it's going to continue to be at steadily lower levels, in part because of the basic disruptions in, in the globalization that we're experiencing between not just Ukraine, but the tensions over Taiwan and um, shortages around the world coming out of COVID, regime change in a number of countries, um, general um, pulling back from from free trade, but but also the volatility in the markets that um, that has been you know the push pull between inflation fears and recession fears has generated a lot of uh, as as anybody who's been following the markets knows um, ups and downs and. That, that more than anything else can get in the way of deal making because that kind of environment leads sellers to view themselves as undervalued and buyers to view their targets as overvalued. And then that gap in valuation, even for private companies, can, um, can kind of translate down into people saying, well, maybe now is not the right time. Let's, let's wait till either prices come down if you're a buyer or prices uh, start coming back up again if you're a seller. And, and there's actually pretty good finance research on this topic showing a pretty good correlation between VIX, the fear index, the measure of volatility in the overall public markets and M&A announcements. It's more pronounced in the public sector. So, you know, the, the overall impacts that I am just summarizing are going to be not as strong in the markets that venture capitalists are principally in and and, and flipping uh, portfolio companies through a sale to a strategic still is that's going to go on with more durability i think and more stability than the overall public markets but of course since it is typically strategic public buyers who are on the buy side of that they too may um, uh, start to slow down as well well, thanks. One reason we want to talk to you is because uh, a company, a VC-backed company, is more than 10 times likely to get acquired rather than IPO for a liquidity event. We're typically seeing a, uh, a purchase, as you said, by a strategic buyer. Speaking of things that have been, I guess, providing headwinds to M&A deals, the Wall Street Journal recently had an article about Chairwoman Khan at the, uh, at the FTC saying that the FTC has been examining deals more closely and slowing things down a bit. Uh, what's your reaction to that, to the extent you feel comfortable voicing it? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I haven't studied the data, so I don't factually know whether that's true, but it seems plausible to me. The Biden administration has made some appointments like uh, Khan and, and others that, that have brought in people who believe that antitrust generally has been under-enforced over the past period. And they also have different ways of thinking about some of the antitrust laws in operation. They, they tend to focus more on networks and on the capacity of particularly tech firms to dominate a sector, even if by traditional measures they may not have uh, market dominance, they nevertheless can use their sort of network roles and their capacity to to leverage existing um, sticky relationships with their, their customer base to, to move into other domains. And so for both of those reasons, you know, I, I'm not at all surprised to hear um, complaints that, that the M&A regulatory process has, has slowed down. You know, whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing might depend on where you are in any given part of a, a deal process. Like, you know, if you're trying to get a deal done, that's bad. But if you're a company that doesn't want to 
face a dominant competitor and is building out a new um, a new uh, a new gadget or a new idea for something and doesn't quite yet want to be squashed, that might not be so bad. So I, I think it's sort of a mixture for um, people in, in different kinds of companies uh, in terms of ups and downs. For pure M and A lawyers and bankers, obviously, it's 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 a, it's just bad uh, to slow things down. Great. You mentioned antitrust and Hot Heart Scott Rodano is the first thing that comes to mind for most of us when you think about antitrust. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the process for receiving clearance for a deal from the FTC and DOJ and also the threshold? So many of our listeners might not know the threshold. I'm not sure that I know it to the penny. Well, even I'm not going to be able to give you the precise penny. It's actually now adjusted every year in February based on changes in GDP from the prior year. And so I actually no longer have in my head the, the, the precise number. If you get, you just Google client numbers, you can quickly find the thresholds. Um, it's up near like 103 million though, right? I mean, it's up, yeah, somewhere. It's, it, it's well over uh, 100 million now. I think it might even be higher than 200 million um, for, oh. it, there's two different thresholds. There's just the basic transaction test. And then there's another test depending on the relative size of the, both the buyer and the target. Um, and you can get pretty substantial deals just under that threshold altogether. I think, you know, more importantly, frankly, in practice, whether you're above or below, 90% of deals are cleared, you know, rapidly. Uh, you can request early termination and, and that will be granted for the vast majority of deals subject to the filing requirements because most deals really don't raise any significant um competitive concern for for under how whatever your theory or your politics or your policy inclinations. And so, you know, for the most part, MA chugs along regardless of party regime or attitude. There are, of course, a tiny number of deals that ultimately get blocked altogether. That's usually less than 30 a year. And then they tend to make the newspaper though. They they tend to be big because that gives them at least arguable uh, monopoly power or oligopoly power, and that tends to attract the biggest notice. And so they do tend to get headlines that, you know, the, the biggest area that's actually kind of challenging in practice is neither the majority that go through pretty easily nor the ones that get blocked where that's like out of an army of lawyers attached to it. But really, it's the ones in between because there um, there's enough to warrant often a second request of information from the regulatory agencies, which itself can be difficult and challenging to manage, just pure paperwork. I remember once we filled up, we had, we counted, we filled up two giant cargo planes full of documents to respond to uh, a single second request. And then maybe even more challenging is there'll be some divestiture package that you'll need to put together in order to get clearance. And that itself requires a complicated multilateral negotiation. You have to negotiate with who you're going to divest to, and then you have to negotiate with the regulatory agency to make sure that's enough to satisfy them. And typically there's a negotiation between the two parties to the original deal who may have slightly different takes on how quickly or what terms or which buyers to to, to reach out to. And so that's um, in a lot of ways a very interesting, you know, kind of deals following on deals um, that are triggered by uh, the antitrust process. In most of the deals in the VC space, we see stock purchases instead of asset purchases. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about uh, the pros and cons of each and when when one is appropriate versus the other? Sure. I, you know, it, this is a complicated topic. I usually spend a couple 
of full classes on this choice uh, in my my regular courses. But the, the quick summary is: stock purchases have the advantage of being uh, typically pretty easy and simple to do. They preserve intact the corporate organization, so and that that provides a number of benefits. What that usually implies, and it almost kind of forces, is that the existing entity is being sold as it is. And what you can't do with the stock purchase all by itself is divide up, say, a division that is not separately incorporated from another part of the same company. So if you've got a a client, a, a company that wants to sell itself or a, a subsidiary, which has more than one business line in it. And a lot of times, you know, startups tend to be pure plays, but sometimes they can actually, you know, develop more than one product, which as people really stare at them, really maybe don't belong together in the end state. So if you have to divide up unincorporated divisions, really you're forced into an asset transfer of some kind, whether it's before or after the eventual sales, you're still going to have to divide up the assets in some way. And that really is the biggest driver for why asset purchases are used. Sometimes there are tax differences that can matter. I always tell my students that if I say anything about tax, you should ignore me because I'm not a tax specialist and I'm I'm only half right, which means I'm really wrong. So I'm only going to gesture at that and say there are sometimes really important tax differences that can make an asset purchase more attractive. Usually you can synthesize those, as I understand it, with stock purchases and some elections under the tax law, but not completely. And there may be limits, particularly if there's payment over time in the form of uh, installment notes or the like. I mean, I'll say one last thing. It's often thought, particularly by clients who kind of know a little law in the way that I know a little tax law, that you can uh, somehow magically make liabilities go away by doing asset sales um, or asset purchases. And and if you just think about it for a moment, that can't really be right. The creditors who are sitting there, you know, often, usually watching, are typically reasonably intelligent and they won't have structured their loans in a way that would let someone sell away the assets and leave them with nothing. Somehow they're going to need to get paid. The, you know, truth of it, of that idea is sometimes if there are contingent liabilities, ones that are not yet mature, maybe not even yet known, towards sometimes fall in this category, you might be able to, to put together a transaction that can separate assets from those kinds of potential liabilities. But even there, fraudulent conveyance law and other forms of clawbacks will make that hard to pull off. Um, and so I, in, in my practice at Wachtell, I don't remember a single asset purchase ever really being motivated um, by that. And I've done some case studies since as a researcher and have found, you know, they're a tiny subset, even of the asset purchases that are done. So really, in the end, the reason for most asset purchases is just straightforward. You've got a company with two lines of business and you want to separate them. And that's that's the reason for the asset versus purchase structure. That's a good point, because we normally think of stock purchases being warts and all, right? You're getting everything, no matter what. And then an asset uh, asset purchase agreement, there's always excluded liabilities there. But if you take all the good stuff, then you're just left with the bad stuff. And it's like, what does the company do then? It can't just declare bankruptcy. And then everybody exactly. does, the seller, does, of doesn't course, get their money back. 
the seller who retains those excluded liabilities is is going to take that into account right. when it comes to the price. So it's not like there's a free lunch. I mean, it's going somewhere. So uh, you know, I sometimes sellers are better able to bear risks attached to some of those, and so maybe that's a reason to do it if they kind of are convinced they can manage a liability down, whereas the buyer is less sure. Okay, that that may might be a reason for thinking about uh, an asset structure. But as I say, the biggest reason is just you've got division A and division B and they really do different things and and you're going to have to divide up the assets anyway. A great case we teach that Warren Buffett did where he bought the he wanted to he he was a he was a believer in newspapers as they were dying. The joke was always because he was a newspaper boy and so it was like a, a pet thing for him. But actually he made a ton of money by buying dying businesses, uh, just paying less than they were worth. Anyway, and and that one of them uh, owned television and newspaper. He didn't want the television, so they had to do an asset deal in order to separate the, the television from the newspaper division. I was looking through your writings, which are extensive, Professor Coates. So, uh, congrats on that. I'm sure being a uh, I'm sure being at Harvard, it's a little bit easier to write papers than when you were at Wachtell. Um, and about five years ago, you wrote the M and A contracts that, in your experience, they had doubled in size or almost doubled in size for the previous twenty years, from '96 to 2016. Obviously, any new terms are going to lengthen contracts. Are there any common terms in M and A contracts that you feel could be sunsetted? Well, I, I'm sure there are some, but not many. And the reason is a lot of the growth. I actually not only noticed the growth when I. I pulled one out for teaching purposes one day and I said, this seems to be thicker than I remember them being. And I went back and I did some much more careful benchmarking to sort of say, even for you know very similar kinds of deals, they really had doubled uh, since I was a, a young lawyer. Most of the growth we found in analyzing them was you know, kind of pretty predictable, reactive addition of language to deal with new risks or new issues that haven't gone away. So when control systems had to be tested, starting with Sarbanes-Oxley in 2002, suddenly you saw reps related to control systems, and you still have to deal with control systems if you've got a public target, and even a lot of private targets have them. And so that language is still there. When the 2008 crisis hit, and there were a lot of disputes about financing for finance deals that required debt to be raised for the deal, um, uh, a lot of disputes emerged over precisely who had to do when to get the financing done, or was there a breach? And so people wrote much longer covenants and reps related to the financing. And there's no reason really to tremble that in finance deals. You still, you know, you like that specification once it's uh, laid out there. So I would say most of the growth is unfortunately, you know, there to stay, and lawyers more generally do you know a lot more thinking about new risks than they do about saying, well, that risk has kind of diminished to the point we'll cut it out. Why bother to cut it out? Just leave it. If it's low risk, it's still not typically harming anything is the thought process. Now, the, the challenge, of course, is when you have 150 single pages to go through, there's actually more room for error. I do think that's real as a risk to deal makers. Um, I've noticed over the years many, many glaring errors. And honestly, as a consultant in litigation, I've noticed virtually every contract I've looked at when I get pulled in has something in it that just there's some term that that's capitalized as if it's defined. And then you go look in the defined terms and it's not defined. Or 
there's a cross-reference to a section that was deleted or, you know, or there are two just genuinely inconsistent sections that didn't seem to be noticed as inconsistent. Yeah. And, and I also feel when you have a 115 page document, then the client might not look through it all. Totally. I mean, you know, even in the old days, you know, 60 pages, it was hard to divide it up in a way that really got eyeballs on it from a business person who could really understand it or take the time to work with the lawyer to understand it. Now, I think that's even kind of a hopeless task in some cases. And so you get surprises. So I think collectively, there is a real interest that unfortunately doesn't get realized that uh, lawyers could usefully trim these things. And I think the way to do it would not really to be eliminate things, but to com- to consolidate them by using more general language to cover some things that are now covered in quite elaborate detail. But that that actually takes work to do well. And in the middle of time pressures for most deals, lawyers don't have time for that. Like, can you imagine? Associate, go out and find 37 phrases to compress uh, without losing any loss, you know, without losing any actual substance in the compression. It's just, it's just not the kind of thing that lawyers do. Um, and, and, you know, frankly, clients probably wouldn't pay them uh, because to get paid for that, you'd have to say, because we're worried we might make a mistake. And that's kind of a hard sales pitch. Please pay us a whole bunch of money so we can do something that will maybe reduce the risk that we're going to make a mistake, which we're not really supposed to admit we have. So I've become, you know, pessimistic that that anything other than continual growth. And by the way, it's pretty continuous. It's not like there's like a big spike. It's just like you know, five to ten percent a year. So in another twenty years, there'll be another hundred uh, percent bigger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, I'd like to ask you about um, rep and warranty insurance. So for the audience, for those who might not practice in this area, representations and warranties, the company is representing things are the case, and then a warranty is actually given someone an, uh, something like an indemnity uh, in case it's not true. Um, I, I, I used to not see many reps and warranties, and I'm not you know, full-time M&A in the way that, that, that you were or, or are, but see a number of deals. And I feel like the last five years or so, I've, I've seen an uptick in the use of rep and warranty insurance instead of an indemnity. Uh, have you seen that trend? What have you seen for rep and warranty uh, insurance, the use of that in deals? Yeah, it, it, there's definitely a slow, I would say a slow trend up. and. I, I've I've done a little bit of interviewing with different with both the insurers as well as some of the people who've who've effectively purchased this kind of insurance to figure out why. Because it, as a first pass, insurance tends to only make sense where no one can who's who's involved can directly affect the realization of the risk. Like if if you can burn down your own house safely and collect house the insurance for that. It's not a good type of insurance because the insurance company will worry about that and will charge a gigantic premium and it won't be worth it. So, you know, the reason we all safely could buy house insurance is who's going to burn down their own home. That's actually, you know, not a good thing. But when it comes to reps and warranties, a lot of the risks are things that the target, um, usually it's the target who's the one bearing the risk uh, in the first instance, uh, can control. And so to offload that onto an insurance company may be problematic. And that's why you still don't see full coverage of, of reps and warranties in any insurance policy. The ones that are the most, that have the most moral hazard, as it's called, uh, just aren't insured. Um, so that's 
one reason that you did not used to see them. And then the second thing is often the parties themselves just are the best risk bearers. They're going to know the most about the risk and either the target or the buyer or some combination as a compared to a third party insurance company are just not going to, you know, they're going to be able to, to evaluate the probability of, of the event or the, the, the cost of the event better than the insurance company will. So that's why I always tended to go in when I was in practice thinking it's just not really worth focusing on here. So why do we start to see more of them? And I think it's partly because, maybe not so obvious, the rise of, of, of the private M&A market, um, sales like by VC funds to other funds, continuation funds, secondary buyout funds, PE funds buying directly from VC funds, or strategics that are buying at the divisional level. So effectively, they're like a private buyer. They're not offering stock. They're just paying cash to uh, an exiting um, fund or founder family. So you got private, private, first of all. And then um, the seller often does not want to retain ongoing liability risk if, if they can find an alternative. Not because they're worried about the risk per se, but just because they want to move on. They want to be able to liquidate the fund. They want to be able to return the dollars to their investors or their family uh, businesses. They want to be able to just, you know, give the money out to the cousins and they all go off into into doing whatever they want to do. And if you don't have insurance, then that means the indemnity tail is sitting there hanging over everybody until that's Mm -hmm. resolved. And so it just sort of forces the sell side to remain kind of there for longer than a lot of people want. And so the rise of more complex, purely private M&A uh, with that kind of motivated seller uh, has been a driver for uh, the rise in, in rep and warranty insurance. I think it'll be interesting to watch as it as that type of insurance penetrates the M&A markets more broadly. There are gonna be some, you know, pretty predictably some disputes over uh, what's covered, um, as between the insurance company and the parties, is there some type of you know fraud in the application for the insurance that that could nest within a basic claim on the insurance policy? You know, insurance companies have been known in some pockets of the world to occasionally you know drag their feet on paying things, um, and so you put all that together, and I think it'll be I think you'll still see continued increase in it, but I think it's going to be kind of episodic and people are going to keep going back and forth about is it really worth it um uh, and the premiums are probably going to fluctuate a little bit as the insurance companies get more experience uh, with rating these kinds of risks have you seen it affect escrows at all well it, it i haven't seen a systematic i haven't seen anybody study that systematically it should i mean escrows are and and holdbacks both they kind of serve the same function um uh, are there to provide credit support for the indemnity often, or at least that's a piece of why they're there. And um, they're also sometimes linked to earnouts, which are different. But in any event, um, uh, to the extent that they're providing a backstop for uh, risk allocation of, of basic um, assumptions on valuation, you would think that if you could get a good policy, then that would remove that, right? You've got a, you've got presumably a solvent regulated insurance company standing behind the promise. And so why do you need as much of an escrow? 
Yeah. Uh, let me ask you a couple of things on the actual deals. So I once, when I was a junior uh, attorney way back when, I had a partner tell me once that in a perfect world, it would be better for partners to do the due diligence instead of having a bunch of first and second years in a warehouse looking at boxes uh, because they knew what to look for. Whereas a lot of times, I guess I can admit it now, uh, I didn't necessarily know what I was looking for back then. I just needed to take all the notes that I could. Uh, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about how due diligence is practiced? Is there a better mousetrap there? Yeah. So I, it's a complicated question in some part. I mean, there's, of course, business due diligence and then the role that lawyers play. And they're quite different in, in, in practice and in significance. I mean, the business due diligence really is very important. and um, and and usually does involve, I mean, the private equity world, which I know um, reasonably well, I mean, they have full-time people who are quite senior in their careers, whose sole job is to help oversee structure and implement a due diligence process for every single one of their portfolio deals. So they take that all the business side of it very, very seriously. They have to, because they're gonna have, you know, very, you know, um, carefully penciled, assumptions about cost savings to pay down the debt that they've they've got to execute on or go bankrupt the legal side of it there's i think often a, a confusion i think some lawyers think they're doing business due diligence and they really that's not really what they're trained for there is a check the box mentality that arises in part because some due diligence is done purely for legal reasons right to get a defense on the securities laws or to satisfy duty of care, it's more, as long as you did a process, then that's all you need. So then it can be a bit of an empty thing and, and, and yet you still have to do it. So I think there's a little bit of that that contributes to the internal, what, what do you want to call it? Uh, it? People are a little bit ill at ease at times as lawyers uh, running due diligence. And, and, and then the, the last thing is if you the truly interesting and, and, and real aspects of legal due diligence are things like evaluating lawsuits. Companies are, you know, they're both plaintiffs and defendants. And so that, that takes a deep dive into the specific litigation. And if you, in order to do that, you can't just be a deal lawyer. I mean, you might know something about those areas of law you remember vaguely from law school, but if it's some you know, intellectual property claim of the like, is a deal lawyer going to know that well? Probably not. So you really do need to bring in specialists to do that reasonably well. And some firms are set up that way and others less so. Yeah, I don't know that you need a senior partner, but you need, you know, somebody who is not doing deals full time, but instead thinking about um, patent rights full time to participate in a patent litigation evaluation as part of due diligence. And so I, you know, to me, that's, that's the useful place for lawyers to think, like where in my firm do I have the knowledge to bring to bear on some real contingencies that really could swing value that are legal in nature? The other thing lawyers do is a little bit more mechanical, but can be quite important, which is just look for um, obstacles like contracts that will blow up if you have a change of control or pure. I mean, sometimes I, there's one matter I worked on where half the value of the deal was tied up in a contract, which by its terms just went away if the deal was structured one way versus another. That's the place where legal um, participation and due diligence can really matter. And I think keeping those roles straight is something, unfortunately, that, that sometimes law firms don't um, train well on, like 
So that's the role for the senior partner. The senior partner's role shouldn't be actually reading each document, but it should be to make sure that the junior lawyers know where they're adding value and, and where they can't, and then where they can't to make sure somebody's doing that, not them, but somebody else. Right. My favorite part used to be reading the employment files. There was all, all these juicy details in there about like who who had done what and you know, random accidents and the like. Um, I'll ask you one more question, Professor Coates. There's some debate as to whether it's worthwhile to do an LOI or not. So sometimes we spend a lot of time on the, the letter of intent and then um, we, we kind of recut the deal when we're actually drafting the de- definitive agreement. Obviously, the whole idea is that you you kind of do the deal up front, and then so when you're actually drafting it, it's supposed to be a smooth process. I've yet to be a part of one where that actually happened. I feel continually like we're just having two negotiations. How do you feel about LOIs? Uh, do you uh, uh, d- does it have any credence? The the idea of oh you know just go straight to the definitive agreement. So famously, LOIs have been called tools of the devil because they are really good for generating disputes. A couple of my academic colleagues, Alan Schwartz at Yale and Ron Gilson at Stanford and Columbia did a study uh, probably 15 years ago now, where they looked at, at contract disputes coming out of M&A transactions and they found like just an enormous number of them were attributable to either term sheets or letters of intent because they're often deliberately ambiguous as to how binding they are as to whether they really are meant to be binding as to the deal or whether they're meant to be binding only as to an agreement to keep negotiating or not even that. Maybe it's just meant to be binding as to confidentiality uh, and then everything else is totally up in the air. Those three choices can um, uh, be reflected in language that, that sometimes goes to a jury. And a lay jury will then be deciding whether you actually agreed to buy this company with this very skinny little term sheet or you just agreed to keep negotiating, or you're actually not bound at all. And I, you know, I don't know about you, but, and, and the reason, by the way, juries come into play more there is because often you do not have a forum selection clause built into the LOI stage. That usually comes often, will come later. And, right. and so you can't even channel the way the litigation might go into arbitration or before a judge. So anyway, I, like, that's, that's the downside. In addition, obviously, as you say, you got to do it twice. You got to go through the LOI, and then you got to go back through it once again when you get to the definitive agreement. Um, all right, why do people use them at all? Sometimes you kind of have to um, because you've got so many people, multiple multiple different entities that have to coordinate on a deal, and you just can't involve all of them practically in definitive agreements from the outset. You like before they'll even talk to you, they need to see some basic terms. Lenders famously just, you know, at least want to have some idea of what the deal is going to look like before they'll come up with a term sheet to help right. you figure out the financing cost. And then you need to know that in order to, anyway, you get it. So there's sort of um, chicken and egg problems with multiple party deals that make LOIs kind of inescapable. Another reason is that. You can file with the antitrust authorities on an LOI. And so if you're really in a hurry and you otherwise think you can get it through the antitrust pretty quickly, and that might be a gating item, there's a, you know, you can you can speed things up slightly, um, maybe. Uh, at least that's the theory sometimes. And then, you know, a final reason is frankly that clients don't trust their own lawyers, by what by which I mean. 
they think, and sometimes they're right about this, that if they put some basic terms in an LOI, shake hands, that that will reduce the odds that the deal will die in in the negotiation. And it'll it'll discipline their own lawyers and the other side's lawyers will be disciplined and that'll just make things easier to get to a conclusion. I'm not sure I've ever seen any proof of that. There's a little bit, I think, of a felt sense that you can get some momentum behind a deal with an LOI and it kind of just, it creates the sense that it's gonna happen. Maybe it's a little more psychologically hard for people to walk away after having agreed to an LOI than it would be without one. Yeah, I do tell clients that there there should be some moral authority there. That if you yeah. if that was agreed to in an LOI, then people need to at least make an effort. But what's what to me is odd about that is I, I think the same thing is true if two business people, two principals, have had a you know a Zoom meeting or a face to face even meeting and shaken hands on a set of terms, whether they're in an LOI or not. At that point, that has some moral authority to it. You know, they've shaked, they've shook hands, they're, and they're like principals, and they, they they're going to have a reputation for each how they've dealt with each other. They're going to have a relationship or not going forward. And I, does the piece of paper with all the little bells and whistles that go into LOIs really add a lot? Maybe um, I don't know. I I I, I went. I practiced at Wachtell. Most of my deals were public company deals, although I, you know, probably 40% were private. Public company, you really don't see them because of risks of leaks and, and other things. So I would say I'm kind of biased against them. And I would just say, you know, in keeping with the Wachtell mentality, is like, just get the deal done. Like, why are we like, just, <laughs> you can get a deal done in a weekend if you really are dedicated and stay up all right. night. So, so what, what do we need a piece of paper that, at the you know, on Friday night at 10 to help get to something by Sunday night at 10? Just get the definitive agreement out. Anyway, I, I'm, I know I'm, that, that's not completely realistic. And uh, <laughs> I, I do remember deals taking months and months in some cases. So I get it. Uh, and then the last, so I guess that actually raises one last point about it, which I'm increasingly finding more, more attractive than I would have once upon a time, is memory. <laughs> it's like, you could have two people in totally good faith agree to something. And then three months go by, because it just, there's a long process that has to be done and they literally will not remember anymore what they agreed to three months ago, unless they have a piece of paper memorializing it as an aging father. I, I, I now have a lot more sympathy for that than I maybe once would have. I was about to say those of us who are married can relate to relate to that. Um, Awesome sleep. We'll do it to you. Yeah. Speaking of tools of the devil, I am an adjunct professor and my least favorite part of the job is grading. And uh, when you went from being an adjunct to being a full-time professor, tell me about that transition. Surely now grading is a lot easier. It's not, no. Don't um, you have TA? But don't you have TAs as an adjunct? You probably didn't have TAs. No, no. The, uh, I, you know, one of the things that the rest of the university thinks that we law professors are crazy about is that we do not allow TAs in grading. Full stop. So you all need a union. Wait, may I guess it's I don't know. It's it's a point I think of of uh, kind of craft and pride that we we still read every single one of those student essays or or whatever however the exam is structured um, first year second year third year the only exceptions maybe are like purely the occasional you know kind of quantitative course in finance or accounting or something um, but uh, no it is. 
I actually found when I was an adjunct that I felt better about it because my co-teacher and I would grade every single exam separately and then we'd compare. And for, that was eye-opening because uh, we didn't agree. Right. Um, but we rapidly realized like where we disagreed and the ultimate grade I felt much more confident in. When I do it by myself, sometimes I'm like, hmm, I wonder if I went back to that first batch of 12 and reread them, would I still think the same thing I do, you know, after I've graded a hundred of them. Um, and, but I don't, um, I don't, yeah, grade them all. Yeah. I don't grade them all twice. So. <laughs> and to, to us seeing how legal careers go, you know, the grades you get in law school are really not that important, but to the students, it's just the be all and all, and they just fall apart if it's a, you know, a B plus instead of an A minus. Um, Anyway, well, thank you so much, Professor Coates, for joining us today and talking about M&A and teaching at Harvard. Uh, we hope to have you on the show again. Maybe next time we can talk about Elon Musk and Twitter. That was one of my questions, but that would probably we would probably run another hour on that. Yeah, I don't know where we would stop talking about that one. So, okay, next time we can talk about the, um, the, the, the Twitter battle. All right. All right. Well, sounds good. Enjoy your fall. Good talking to you, Gary. Take care. And to the listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode of VC Law, brought to you by the American Bar Association. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org slash bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.